It's good to see everybody today. Uh, I have uh, something that has been on my heart for some time and um, never really taught it the way that I'm going to this morning. But uh, anyway, it'll, it'll become pretty obvious. But I, I was just thinking uh, this morning as we were worshiping that everything about God is good. But not everything is pleasant. Who the Lord loves, he disciplines. And many people have a monolithic revelation of Jesus. Sweet Jesus. He is sweet, sweetest there is. But he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what I want to share with you this morning, just put the first slide up um, and leave it there. Towards a selfless gospel, the challenge to self in following Jesus. Uh, this is uh, what I uh, have been meditating on for quite some time, and uh, so I, I, want to, I want to jump in it. But you know, one of, the, one of the clearest passages that shows us two aspects of Jesus, uh, and these are not, in, I was just thinking about this during worship. In the 16th chapter of Matthew, when Jesus was asking who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, this has been revealed. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because this has been revealed to you, not by humans, but by the Father in heaven. I think that's the uh, 17th verse of Matthew 16. And then what Jesus says to Peter in the same context in verse 23 is, get behind me, Satan. You're interested in the things of men and not the things of God. And so it's, it's interesting to hear Peter is probably just puffed up with pride because he had the revelation, Jesus commended him, and just six verses later, get behind me, Satan. And the reality is, in walking with Jesus, there are things that he says to us, there are things in the context of growing and maturing that have the potential of upsetting us. I wonder what you would feel like if, if Paul or some other leader looked at you and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not interested in the things of God, but the things of man. I don't think Paul would be very quick to say that. And that's the only time that we see Jesus doing that. But there is, if we're going to grow, if we're going to be the instruments in the earth that God desires, then self has to be challenged. Uh, the, I, wanna, I want you to look at this. Uh, a disciple is one who follows Jesus. Disciple or a follower was the term used in the New Testament to describe those who had been radicalized by Jesus. You know, that word radicalized is used uh, mainly about people who've been radicalized to Islam. But you know, it takes a radical living for Christ in the person of Christ being developed for, you to, for us to really get to the place that God really uses us. Because people responding to the Lord in obedience consistently are radical believers, and God has called us to radical believing. I personally believe that there's not any person here that God is finished with. 
Not a person here has come to the fullness of our radicalization. Not a person here, including myself. We're all works in progress. And, and yet, too many times people approach Christianity as passive. That if I can just sit in a seat on Sunday morning, then that's sufficient. I don't believe there's many people like that here, or if there are any at all. But the reality is, is there has to be an aggressive posture we take towards our development. Uh, you know, I like to use sports as an illustration. Uh, the football season is going to be beginning before too long. And one of the worst things that I remember playing football was uh, practice beginning in late July, prepping for the for the fall season. And I was actually telling my grandsons about this the other day. And the number of wind sprints we would have to run totally out of shape because it didn't stay conditioned for the first part of the summer. And then running up and down banks, running up and down banks. And almost every time we had to run banks, I threw up. And yet there were, that was the price to pay in order to get in shape in order that we could win an earthly prize. Well, how much more do we need to be in spiritual shape to win a heavenly prize for our Lord Jesus Christ. The word disciple, this is very interesting. The word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament. The word Christian is found three times in the New Testament. And it was a name given to disciples of Jesus by unbelievers in Antioch. And what they were saying was these people are like Christ. They're like Christ. And so... I'm not opposed to using the term Christian. I use it less and less because it's come to mean very little in a lot of circles. I prefer to say he's a follower or I'm a follower of Jesus. Uh, here's what the flesh is or the self. The self or the flesh is not a reference to the physical body alone. Our bodies are the vehicle of the self or flesh, and also our bodies are the vehicle of righteousness. In other words, however we live in life, our body is the vehicle of that. But Romans 7 specifically calls our flesh the body of death. But by itself, the body can do nothing. If you don't believe that, visit the morgue this afternoon. Those are human bodies, but they by themselves can do nothing because the spirit and soul have checked out. The self or the flesh in Scripture is the unrenewed part of our soul. And this is, this is why we must aggressively pursue the Lord, uh, a relationship with the Lord, interaction with the Holy Spirit, learning to hear the Spirit, and obviously the study of Scriptures. C.S. Lewis said something that's really, really powerful. It's better to forget about yourself altogether. And we're going to see why that's so important. Because Jesus said what we need to do is we need to lose our life. He's talking about the self-life. We'll get to that in just a moment. So it's better to forget yourself altogether. And as I was looking at that the other day, this phrase came to me. I am the one who troubles me most, especially when I demand my way or put myself first. So if, if I'm going to break out of me being my problem, then I'm going to have to learn how to deal with the flesh. In, in Luke 14, verses 26 through 33, uh, Jesus warned those who had just begun to follow him. This was their first message. 
I think Paul said it last week. Jesus puts the price tag up front. Uh, he doesn't try to con people. He doesn't want people to follow him uh, by any deception on his part. He wants them to understand what, are, what he's getting into. And if we paraphrase Luke 14, 26 through 33, this is what Jesus would have said. He should have said, he would have said, warning, walking with me will increase risk in your life. It will require to leave you to leave your comfort zones, and it will mean you can no longer be in control. So, so that's that's what maturing looks like. It's less and less about self, and it's more and more uh, about Christ and pleasing Him. Now, I, I want us to look at Romans 11, and in this passage, and also in uh, the passage coming uh, later. We're going to look at the significance and the very important place reading Scripture and studying Scripture in context has. We can, God can speak a verse to our heart out of context to minister to our soul, but we cannot preach that as revelation. Um, a true story. There was this lady had gangrene of the foot. If I've told this, I'm sorry. I repeat myself a lot. There was this lady who had gangrene, and the doctor came in. She was a believer. The doctor came in in the evening and says, if this is not showing improvement by morning, his words, we're going to have to take your foot. And so that night she cried out to God, and she was reading, I think, in Proverbs or Psalms. And the verse in the, in the translation that she was reading uh, it ended by saying, I will not allow your foot to be taken. The doctor said, I'm going to take your foot. Now, we know that when God put that in the Bible, the revelation is not about saving your feet. It's, it's actually talking about giving us a sure posture to where we don't fall. But this lady had cried out to God, so God lifted that verse out of context to speak to her heart. Now, the amazing thing is the next morning, the gangrene was completely healed because she had received that from the Lord. But the lady would have made a mistake by going around teaching, if you've got a problem with gangrene in your foot, here's your verse. God gave that to her, and he could give it to other people. But when we're studying to get established in the truths of God, we have to understand the context that it was written in. And I love it that we sang unto him, uh, uh, for, him, for from him are all things and to him are all things because that's the verse that I really want to focus on in the Wiest translation verses 33 through 36 read like this oh the depth of the wealth and wisdom of knowledge and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how untraceable the paths he takes we cannot trace the ways of God. God reveals his ways, but there's no way to naturally trace them. For whoever knew the Lord's mind, nobody, we have the mind of Christ, but that's as it's revealed to us. Nobody knows the Lord's mind. Who has become his counselor? Nobody. Or who has previously given to him, and it shall be recompensed to him? No one. And then verse 36. Because out from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 
Now that's very important as we look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Many translations say, therefore, this particular translation says, so then. So you have to go up to the 11th chapter to understand why Paul is saying, so then, or therefore. Just very quickly, the first eight chapters of Romans, Romans has been called the richest of all of the epistles. I personally prefer Ephesians. But Romans is amazing. The first eight chapter of Romans laid down the doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of sanctification, of justification, and of glorification. I got the order wrong. But then the next uh, uh, chapters 9 through 11 reveal that the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant are yet to be complete. And so we shift here. That's why it says, so then. So then doesn't just look at that wonderful passage in chapter 11 where it says from him and to him and for him are all things, but it goes all the way back to the beginning of the book of Romans. That God laid out all of this wonderful truth of our position in Christ, and now in chapter 12 and through the rest of the, the book of Romans, what we learn is we learn that God has called us to live according to that great revelation of our position in Christ, and he reveals to us that he's given us the ability to live this life that he's called us to. Many, many believers think that, you know, we're just called to do the best we can, but that's not true. God has called us to live a life that glorifies the Lord. It's like the prayer in the first chapter of Colossians. When Paul says this, he says that you may live a life that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way. And so that's really where God wants us to be. And so in 12, 1, he says, so then, my friends, because of God's great mercy, which is all the revelation of the first 11 chapters, God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. The, the Greek word literally says beg. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. When there was an Old Testament sacrifice, it was a dead animal. It was tied to the altar. It was a dead animal, but it had to be pure. Well, God is telling us here that we need to offer ourselves as living sacrifices every day, everywhere we are. And that really is true worship. You know, we can sing songs every Sunday and not necessarily worship. But we can live a life and that life not truly be a worship unto God. But the true worship that we need to offer to God is that we give him our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our body should not be the vehicle of sin. Our body should not be the body of death. It should be the body of the life of God in which Christ by his spirit lives on the inside of us. So then, because of God's great mercy, present our bodies a living sacrifice. And it's very important to see that verse 2 is connected to verse 1. Verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable 
and perfect will of God. It's not talking about three levels of the will of God. It's not talking about a good will and then an acceptable and a perfect. There's only one will of God, and it's good, acceptable, and perfect. Those three things, if you want to know what the acceptable will of, or the permissive will of God is, God will permit you to do what you choose to do in rebellion. But that's not his blessing will. So he's saying the will of God is perfect. It's also good and acceptable. So what we've done with this, this verse, this is all preliminary, by the way. What we've done with this verse is said, okay, so we need to renew our minds <clears throat> to the things of God, so that means we read the Bible. And once again, you have to understand the context. Paul was writing to the church at Rome. They didn't have Bibles. The Bible was not printed until the 4th century. And uh, even then, you know, Gutenberg, and I think it was the 14th century, Gutenberg invented movable type to where we have Bibles like this. So he's writing to people that don't have Bibles. And he tells them to renew their mind. And I used to teach this, and I would add to it, renew your mind to the Word of God. Now, I believe in our generation that studying and meditating Scripture and running them out has a big part to play in renewing our mind. But what Paul is addressing here to the church at Rome is that if you will present your body as a living sacrifice, that sacrifice in the Old Testament was fully the Lord's, totally the Lord's. And as we sang, let incense arise, will also the aroma of the burnt offering arose to God when those animals were being burnt. And so here we are, not burnt dead sacrifices, but living sacrifices unto God. And I believe that what will renew our mind to the ways of God is to live sacrificially unto God, obeying what he says. That reshapes our thinking. We have the advantage of Scripture. But people can, many have, studied the Scripture, memorized much Scripture, and they're still Pharisees. God wants us to be full of life, and studying Scripture is a big part of that. But you have, it's the living out of the Scriptures that really brings us to a place of our mind being renewed. When, I first, when we first went to Africa in 1980, and then... 1980 was an easy trip, and then we went in 1982, and we had asked to go into a third world setting. We were in South Africa, and so they, we went to Mozambique, and it was the pits. Minda went, Nita and I, the three of us went. It was the pits. No place I'd ever been that was so bad, and I was possessed with one thought, get me out of here. But as we've continued to go back time and time and time and time again, what's happened is my mind has become renewed to this, that if God opens the door, we have no choice of determining if it's comfortable or uncomfortable. We must obey God and do what he says. But it took time to break in. So there has to be action. We're not passive Christians. We have to act upon what God says. And that's what brings us into that place of a mind that's renewed. Remember the scriptures I, I talked to you about, that our bodies are the vehicles of sin, also of right living. And they are vehicles of the self-life. They're also vehicles of the spirit life. God intends that we yield to the Holy Spirit to where it's the Spirit of God moving us in the earth following Jesus. 
Let's consider what Jesus said that we must do with the self-life. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose or give up his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then in Luke 17, remember a few weeks ago I talked about Lot's wife? Well, it's followed by a verse that makes it even more clear. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. The story was God had told her, do not turn around. Do not look back as I judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And because she was longing for the former life, she turned around and she turned into a pillar of salt. So she wanted to hold on to her life, so she lost it. Uh, her family and the others who left, they gave up their life, and they found a better life that God had for them. And then in 1 John 3.16, in the Good News Bible, it says, this is how we know what love is. How do you know what love is? Christ gave his life for us. We too then ought to give our lives for others. And those words, life and lives are not zoe, which is the life of God. They're not bios, which is biological life. But they're the Greek word psuche. Psuche is the self-life or the unrenewed part of the soul. So it's a matter of giving up Jesus as he walked the earth. He came into the earth a man anointed of God, and he, de he depended on God, and he chose God's way every single time and never sinned. Why? Because he had given up that self-life. He chose not to do anything pleasing to himself. Even on the cross, he said, I can call my father, and he would send 10,000 angels to get me. But he chose to do God's will no matter what the cost to himself was. So how do we subdue the flesh, the self-life? I'm going to, this passage is so, so significant. Uh, in John 20, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'll go back and comment on parts of it. Verse 20 of John 12, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The Greeks were the cool ones. And so these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And, and I really believe the disciples were excited. Because finally we're getting the Greeks. Finally we're getting the cool guys. So Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I, I would imagine their minds just stopped and said, Hallelujah, he's, we're finally going to be glorified here. We've been receiving all sorts of persecution, all sorts of junk, but now we're going to be glorified. But Jesus surprises them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. 
If any if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. This is a day and a half before Jesus goes to the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. The word men, or some translations say people, is not in the Greek. It's added by translators. Here's the key to understanding this. Verse 33. He said this. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was lifted up on the cross. And he drew something to himself that we'll see in just a minute. Now let's analyze this. In verse 23, it says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying is surrendering the self-life. Dying and going into obscurity. You, we surrender the self-life to God. We go into obscurity. Uh, we don't need to have the, the praise of men. We choose what God says for us, and there's a season of being in obscurity. So we die by surrendering the self-life to God and his purposes. Here, Jesus is not only speaking about himself and the death that he will die, he's speaking to anyone who will follow him. As Jesus was required to take up his cross, we're required to take up our cross. No glorification and no fruit without death. When a seed falls into the ground, the first thing that happens, it dies. That The crust of that seed, the shell of that seed, the elements of the earth break it open. And the, what's on the inside of that seed begins to intermingle with the ground around it. And so first there's death, then there's life, and so it begins to grow underground, then there's a sprout. And so this is what has to happen to us. We are geared, every one of us, we're geared the wrong way. We come to Christ, and the new birth is the beginning of being geared the right way. We have lived for self, we come to Christ, and God begins to deal with that. And when we begin to allow him to have his way, then that's when we begin to bear fruit. In verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is not talking about hating who you are. It's not talking about self-loathing. It's talking about hating the self-life that bent to sin and lawlessness that each and every one of us has. 
If I, if I love my self-life, I will refuse to subdue it, and I will lose out on life that is truly life. If I hate my self-life and its ways and how it resists God and His ways, then I will subdue it by refusing it its pleasure. And then in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So in this context of first dying and allowing God to bring true life into us, then we begin to live a life that's truly full of life, and part of that is being honored by the Father. And then Jesus says in verse 27, and this is really the crux of it, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and will glorify it again. Jesus had a choice of two prayers, and so do we. First prayer is, Father, save me from this hour. But he answers himself, no, I can't pray that because for the very reason that I came to this hour is this. So I'm not going to pray, Father, save me for this hour. Second prayer, he prayed it, it must be our prayer. Father, glorify your name. When we're faced with challenges, when we're faced with difficulties, we've stepped out in obedience to God and sometimes things don't go the way we thought they would, trouble comes, and the tendency of the flesh is, save me from this hour. But Jesus said, for the very reason that I'm in the earth is this hour, that I came to where I'm going to have to sacrifice my life. So the second prayer Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. And our desire in following Jesus is that God be glorified through whatever it is that we face. Now, I don't want this to be a morbid thing for you because we're not talking about you losing yourself. We're talking about losing the tendency of carnality, the tendency of the flesh, the tendency of pleasing self. If we give that up, then God gives us so much more than we would have ever dreamed of. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it thundered. Um, and I want to jump down to verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. What's he talking about? He's talking about going to the cross. God put the judgment that is due every person upon Jesus. That's why Jesus said, Father, save me from this hour. I can't do that. This is, this is a hard thing that God has given me, but I cannot do that. So now the judgment of this world, all judgment of every person, judging of sin, was placed upon Jesus. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out because Jesus yielded. He was sinless. He defeated Satan because he never yielded to the Father. And he took all judgment upon himself. And he said, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. What he drew to himself was judgment. Your judgment and my judgment upon himself so that we could have the fullness of life that comes when we walk with Jesus. 
He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was put on the cross. He was lifted up. That's the lifting up. And all judgment was put upon him so that we don't ever have to be judged. If we give up our self-life, then we find life that is truly life. Because myself, that part of me that is still carnal, that's what hinders me in my walk with God. Now, the practical. Just two questions for you, and I want this to take a little time to do this. I want you to an answer this inwardly to yourself. What in you has to die in order for you to move, excuse me, to more fully follow Jesus? What in you has to die in order for you to more fully follow Jesus? I'm not talking about sinless perfection. Every person here has flaws. Every person here uh, is not uh, fully developed. But are there things in your life? Are there attitudes? Are there uh, a, a, an unwillingness to be more aggressive in your faith with the things of God? So what in you has to die in order for you to more fully follow Jesus? I want to ask you to just take a moment. If you're thinking of anything, I want you to write it down and... Um, if there are things that you know in your life that are hindering you to more fully follow Jesus, I'd like for you to take a little bit of time and just write that down. If you don't have a pen, just make a mark of those in your mind. It could be attitudes. It could be, uh, it could be anything. And then each of us has to decide, will we be willing to put these things to death? I want to add two short scriptures that are not in the notes. We, we don't win the victory over the flesh by fighting the flesh. Paul gives us insight in Romans and also in Galatians. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. I'll read 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's by the Spirit. Uh, King James translation says, if, you, if, if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of your body. And that's repeated in Colossians. I, I won't read that. 
But uh, the other one is in the book of Galatians, where Paul says this. He says, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And then he says this, I can't find Galatians. It's, it's in my Bible, I just can't find it. He says, therefore, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We don't fight the flesh. We don't fight fleshly attitudes. We choose to walk in the spirit. We, we, we win or lose the battle in our mind. We can get attitudes towards people that hinder relationship. And if we choose to do what the Spirit says, love one another. God loved us. We need to love one another. So I really want to encourage you. In following Jesus, there is a natural loss to the flesh, not allowing it to have its way. The self-life takes a back seat. Ultimately, it dies. We give up that life so that we can have life that is truly life. And if you had things you wrote down or thought of, then I encourage you this week to make those a part of what you bring before the Lord to get his help to overcome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love that you showed and demonstrated through Jesus and that while we were still trapped in sin, you died for us. And Lord, that love is eternal. It's never-ending. Even in our failures, even in our missteps, even in bad attitudes, you love us. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from your love. So, Father, I pray for every person here today, Lord, that, Lord, we would be willing to give up the self-life so that we could have a life that is truly life indeed. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, help us. We need your help. We need your help. We thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.